The summer of 2007 was a fucking doozy. I'd returned home from my first year of college, disillusioned and depressed. After wasting two of the prime summer months, May and June, in trying to find a job, I'd finally gotten one, and to my great surprise, it was actually awesome. Me and a bunch of other college students and high school seniors were tapped to spend eight hours a day scanning medical records into electronic format. A mindless job accompanied by a whole lot of fucking around. This was the summer of A Bay Bay and Nelly Furtado's Loose. I was having fun, and for the first time since high school, I felt like I actually had friends. I hadn't forgotten all my social skills after all, even after a buried year spent in the library, bloodlessly reading and writing, and wondering what the hell was going on with me. And then it happened. I had a nervous breakdown. It wasn't the first, and it wouldn't be the last, but it was very, very bad. I'd watched a movie about a murderous trans woman who turned out to be a trans man, don't ask, though rest assured it will be covered in a future episode, and something about it just totally broke my brain. In a year's time, I would learn the word transgender and come out to myself, if not to the world at large. But for now, my egg was at once cracking and straining to stay in one piece. I was terrified that summer of the sun going down. I could feel the presence of some secret evil descending upon me. My parents left for two weeks to go on vacation, and I was alone in the old house that was full of sounds and still held the terrors of childhood. I went to the library and took out many long, depressing books. I read Les Mis in the library parking lot as the rain fell hard against all sides of my parents' car. And I got a lot of CDs, too, from the library to upload to my iPod. Music was the thing that was helping me through more than anything else. It was the distraction that held me. And Judy Garland was a huge part of that. There are some moments that you remember with such complete clarity, surrounding every detail except the emotional ones. For instance, I knew how scared I was every morning, waking up relieved to have lived through the night, but horrified to realize that soon enough I'd have to survive another. The monsters of my childhood once again were real, and they were trying to kill me. I put on my headphones and walked down the street to work, early as usual, so I could spend a few peaceful moments alone. Taking the shortcut would have me ducking through a sort of hidden arch and through a pocket-sized private lawn. And one day, while doing this, I heard a song that absolutely flattened me. Fifteen thousand times a day I hear a voice within me say Hide yourself behind a screen You shouldn't be heard, you shouldn't be seen You're just an awful in-between What the fuck was this song, I thought, and what the fuck was she talking about? The song apparently was from a 1939 film called Thoroughbreds Don't Cry, a Judy Garland Mickey Rooney picture made at the height of Garland's studio-mandated barbiturate addiction. Like most Mickey and Judy movies, it's all about growing up. It's about puberty. That's what she was singing about, but it wasn't all she was singing about. I've kept this song with me in the 15 years or so since, and I return to it frequently, and I send it to others who I think will understand what it means. 
Because the truth is that I didn't just realize why I loved it the minute I came out as trans. I didn't just say, oh, duh, it was about that. Because it wasn't just about being trans, it never was. It was about a different kind of loneliness and alienation, something that doesn't just go away when you realize that the monster you're so afraid of being killed by is yourself. That's what I am, and in between, it's just like smallpox quarantine. I can't do this, I can't go there, I'm just a circle in a square, I don't fit in. Coming out as trans and non-binary has, for me, involved taking on and shedding off a lot of different skins. At first, I was angry at myself. Why was this happening to me? Why couldn't I be normal? Whatever the fuck that was. Then I was angry at everybody else. Why were they so stupid about this shit? Then the world started to change around me, and while things didn't exactly get better, they did progress. And I still found myself stuck here in this song, in these words. Judy Garland is obviously a gay icon for a reason. But for me, she's also a trans icon. When she made this film in 1938, it was only her third on-screen appearance. After being tapped by Louis B. Mayer after he saw her stage act, The Gum Sisters, she was made to compete with another teen star at MGM, Deanna Durbin, in the film before this one. It was also around this time that MGM began to prescribe Garland the barbiturates that she would become addicted to throughout her life. Suffice it to say, Garland became well-known in the 30s and early 40s for playing a young kid, but she never actually got to be one. Which is, honestly, like a lot of trans kids. We have to perform being a child, but we never actually get to be carefree, loved, and protected the way kids are supposed to be. Instead of being protected and coddled, Garland was drugged, manipulated, and made to feel ugly and worthless, even as she was netting MGM huge box office returns in films like The Wizard of Oz, and Love Finds Andy Hardy. To make matters even worse, the studio set Garland up with a young woman around this time from the publicity department, and the two grew so close that there were even rumors of them being lovers. Garland soon found out, however, that this woman was actually coached to become Garland's friend in order to spy on her and assert studio control over the growing teen. Thinking about all the things that happened to Judy Garland feels really horrible, especially when you consider how much beauty and joy she brings to us queer folks even now. I get the same feeling when I'm watching one of my all-time favorite movies, and one of the only films in which Garland felt she looked beautiful. 1944's Meet Me in St. Louis. starch collar and my high top shoes and my hair piled high upon my head i went to lose a jolly hour on the trolley and lost my heart instead to watch garland sing the trolley song is as close as i'll get i think to any kind of religious experience it's the combination of her face her expression the candy sweet simplicity of the song and what it's about wanting a boy to like you and the exuberance of the world-building inside the song itself. This is a world in which girls exist to find happy marriages, to be loved and courted, and to want those things for themselves. I could never be a part of that world, and neither could Garland. We all know the story. That woman suffered, strangely and agonizingly, 
over the course of decades to give us the feeling that we weren't quite the fuck-up assholes we thought. She made it okay to suffer in a certain kind of cinematic way, and she shows, in almost every film appearance, how hard it is to be her. To be a person whose vulnerability is so outward that all she has to do is step outside in order to be hurt. Meet Me in St. Louis is nothing if not a movie about girls not being able to step outside. Everywhere they go, they must be chaperoned or accompanied by their large family or listened to or watched by the neighbors. The object of Garland's affection in that film is literally the boy next door, played by the devastatingly beautiful Tom Drake, who apparently was also a gay man. It's a movie about how tiny and intricate this woman's world is and how, because of the time she's living in, she'll never actually break out of that tiny, intricate world of family life. And that's not a tragedy. She doesn't want to. She wants to live with her family and her husband and her kids right on the same block. That's what makes the revelation of the film's ending, in which the family, previously set to leave St. Louis, decides to stay in their town, understanding with delight that they don't have to go anywhere. Their home is right here. The movie ends on the World's Fair coming to the city, and on Garland saying, arm in arm with her, boy next door, now fiancé, can you imagine? It's all right here. Right here, where we live. That vision of Americana is about life coming to you. The romance and excitement of the world coming to your doorstep, probably in the form of a suitor. It's not about being pushed out into the world, sometimes before you're ready, in order to learn about who you are. In Between, on the other hand, is a song about being impatient to grow up. Which is how we all feel when we're that age, trans or not. We want to be our own person, have our own agency make our own decisions. But what if we do all that only to end up at the same place? The in-between place? That's kind of just life as a non-binary person, I guess. Or a trans person. Specifically, if you're a trans person who's come out in the past two years, excited to start living your life as who you are, only to be greeted by closures, lockdowns, and a complete inability to experience community IRL. I guess that's the nice thing about being in-between, though is that it implies that the condition is temporary. We're in between two poles of being, traversing between the two, and someday we know we'll find our home. At least, that's what I need to believe in right now. Totally Trans Minisodes is a production of the Totally Trans Podcast Network. Find us on Twitter at Totally Trans Podcast and support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash totally trans. So for our backers who back us at $5 or more a month on Patreon, they get a personal thank you uh, read live on the air. For these people, it'll be read both in this episode as well as the other episodes premiering this week. So first, thank you, Artemis. Who possesses the eternal beauty of Aphrodite. Thank you, Emma X. Who has the wisdom of Athena. Thank you, Devin McCollin. Who runs with the speed of Mercury. Thank you, Zelda Elsroth. 
whose lovely form hides the strength of Hercules. Thank you, Daria Brashear. Who could handily win a game of bullets and bracelets. And thank you, Lalandra Ali. Who gave up a life on Paradise Island to punch the shit out of fascists. God bless. God bless. Uh, (laughs) So thank you, everyone. Uh, Especially anyone who chose chose to beat up fascists. That's fucking cool. Yeah. Yes. This is a role we've assigned you. Of uh, a tremendous sacrifice to give up your life on Bondage Island for fascist punching. Good job. Yeah, we appreciate you. Uh, And we appreciate all of our backers. Uh, Let us know on Twitter if we said your name wrong. I hope I got it right. And make sure to listen to all the shows coming out this week so you get thanked more. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.